This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio with guest host Jane Brown. We're talking about the two Michaels, Michael Spavor and Michael Kovrig, who have been detained in Chinese prisons. Uh, they've been held hostage now for over 1,000 days. We have a panel of experts here with us uh, discussing the situation. Sarah Teach at the McDonald laurier Institute, Dr. Stephanie Carvin at Carleton University, Dr. Gordon Holden at the University of Alberta. Going into the break, uh, I mentioned and wanted to get reaction from our experts about how the situation with the Michaels has been handled. Uh, Dr. Holden, uh, clearly... The Trudeau Liberals have not made any indication that they would give up Meng Wenzhou in exchange for the Michaels. So is there any other way out of this than what they've been doing? Well, there are some legal mechanisms, though. There's a debate over this, even within the Department of Justice. But the Minister of Justice has had the ability at any point during the Hmong proceedings to push a button and, in effect, says that the Proceedings will come to an end um, because it is in the net interest of Canada. But there's another opportunity after the conclusion. Uh, if she is found extraditable to the United States, the minister can again then intervene. No sign from the Liberals or any other party, in fact, that they would so do. But it, but it is it, it is an option. Uh, if the judge determines, and we expect that later in the fall decision that there's no case to answer. I doubt very much that the government will appeal that decision. She would then leave. I think that would then open up the way, potentially, for the return of the two Michaels. If she is determined to be extraditable, that is appealable by the defense, and I suspect that would be the case, and that can drag on for years. So if she's determined to be extraditable, we could be facing the situation for, um, it could take, Two, three, four years. It's hard to know if they choose to pursue the case all the way to the Supreme Court. Dr. Carvin, what are your observations on that? Um, I would agree. Again, I think we're all in radical agreement right now. Um, I would. The only thing I would disagree with is I think it could take longer uh, with you know the the, the way our, our courts operate, unfortunately. So it could be you know um, the decision with regard to Miss Mung could be appealed all the way to the Supreme Court, and it could take up to seven or eight. 10 years uh, in total. So um, I think that's, that's a real issue and, and of immediate concern, certainly for the uh, Kovrig and Spavor families. With regards to how um, the Liberal Party has handled this, I mean, obviously there's a lot of uh, dissatisfaction. I think at first there was, um, the real approach has been not to escalate the situation through rhetoric, Right. So trying to keep things um, diplomatic, trying to use um, diplomatic pressure in terms of successes. I think having the agreement about arbitration that has been signed now by over 60 countries has been very good and something that will go beyond um, just this particular case, but will hopefully help other, you know, actually, you know, Canada is not the only country in this situation. Right. Uh, Sweden, Australia. Uh, the United States, they all have people who are being held for various reasons in China. So that's good to have an international agreement about arbitrary detention where uh, diplomats agree that they will bring up these issues in their bilateral meetings with um, whatever go- uh, government is is holding people hostage. The unfortunate thing, of course, is that um, I think in trying to be cautious, it's been overly cautious. And I think that, you know, the time for softly, softly is, is no longer working. Mm-hmm. And we do need to take stronger measures. And I'm sure that's what you want to talk um, with the other guests about. Well, well exactly. But, uh, yes. Yeah. So um, I don't know if you want to get to that part, but my idea is, is um, effectively with regards to uh, Chinese foreign investment, I don't understand why we would allow investment if, you know, I think I think Chinese foreign investment should be subject to screening, whereby if it is felt that um, if legal proceedings are brought against a Chinese company uh, here in Canada, if there is the risk of retaliation in terms of hostage taking, then that foreign investment should not be allowed to proceed. And I think that should be a very open 
restriction that we have on Chinese investments uh, here in Canada. Sarah Teach will have more to say about that for sure. Uh, as an international human rights lawyer, senior fellow at McDonald Laurier Institute, you are actually taking a proactive approach in uh, in pushing Canada to overhaul its way of thinking about global hostage taking. Tell us more about that, Sarah. Sure. So uh, with the McDonald Laurier Institute, um, I authored a legislative proposal. Um, basically, the the premise of this proposal is that we don't have anything like this yet. So Canada currently responds to each hostage situation sort of on the fly. Like there's no comprehensive law or policy on point. Uh, Canada signed the UN Hostages Convention, uh, then criminalized, uh, pursuant to its obligations under that, they then criminalized hostage taking both at home and abroad. And that's basically it. And then, yes, we have, since I actually wrote the legislative proposal, they did this uh, 58-country uh, coalition against arbitrary detention. And I agree that that's a very positive step, but it's still not really anything that has any teeth. If anything, it could be a good framework to add more in the future. So the legislation that I proposed with MLI and with the Canadian Coalition Against Terror uh, basically uh, would allow the Canadian government to impose sanctions on foreign states and foreign officials that engage in hostage-taking. It also would mandate certain uh, communications and uh, support for families of hostage-taking uh, because so far there's been very, very little of that. What happens when a hostage is taken on the family victim level is that the family is assigned a family liaison officer, which is just an RCMP officer. And the FLO... Basically, it's a case-by-case basis whether or not they are supportive enough. Some There's been some instances where families talk about how their FLO is dismissive and says things like, you know, I, I need to get back to my full-time job now. And then there's cases where they go above and beyond. And there's no consistency. And there's, no, there's also very little provision of mental health support, which is, you know, which is quite critical. So, and all this was exposed in the 2016 Toronto Star piece, and nothing's changed since. So... Um, the the legislative proposal we put forward also would tackle that uh, directly. Are you inviting inviting Canadians to get behind this legislation, proposed legislation? Yes, uh, I definitely invite Canadians to get behind it. Uh, Also, interestingly, it uh, is now in the Conservative policy platform. Uh, So there's hope for it to actually become law, uh, depending on the party that's elected. And I was on a radio show talking about this last week where um, I was asked an interesting question, what would you say to the to Trudeau? And one thing I would also hope to push forward is that, you know, there's a trend in Canadian politics where if one party picks up an issue, the other parties don't, and it becomes a partisan issue. Mm-hmm. And this can't become a partisan issue. So I would like to see this legislation passed regardless of who wins. So, And you have, um, have had no reaction to this from the Liberals prior to when the election was called? No, I mean, not directly. I, the, the Coalition Against Arbitrary Detention came about after my proposal, so perhaps I indirectly influenced something. I don't know. Obviously, those things take many months, so perhaps it had no effect whatsoever, but that's sort of the only tenuous link I can point to with the Liberals. And, and for more information, where do people go? The McDonald Laurier website has a copy of this. You could also find it on their Twitter account or my Twitter account, uh, we try to push it forward at every opportunity. So it's, you should be able to find it pretty easily. We do have a caller would like to get in on the conversation. Dan in Elmwood, go ahead. Good day. Yeah, it's got a lot more to do with it than just the Michaels. Uh, the free world needs to get together and move production of everything out of China to a lot of the small, poor countries around the world that could use some uh, hand up. Um, we need to take the power away from the uh, people that control China. That's the way to do it. Okay, Dan, thank you for your call. Dr. Holden, uh, what about the United States? Uh, Dan brings up other countries, but has the United States let Canada down on all of this? Well, I think that the U.S. has been forward in raising the case. Secretary of State Blinken had done so, and we believe that uh, both President Trump and President Biden have done so as well. However, for the Americans, it's one of a couple dozen issues that include big big heavy lifts like Taiwan, South China Sea, and other many other issues, their own concerns as well, um, technological rivalry, etc. The other challenge is when we speak of 
completely changing supply chains, uh, reworking the world economically, that would take tremendous government intervention in the private sector. Ironically, in 2020, when the relationship between Washington and Beijing was deteriorating, there was a rush of American capital to China, both portfolio investment as well as foreign direct investment, that is, Chinese firms, U.S. firms, putting factories, putting more money into operations in China to be part of Chinese supply chains. So the political reality is running in the opposite direction than the economic reality, with exception possibly of the technology sector, was bipartisan support in Washington for a tougher line. Uh, I, I'm just indicating that China has ways to push back. There are powerful economic factors in play, including private corporations. The U.S. is at least able to talk to China and has high-level contact with them. We are not allowed, thanks to the Chinese response to the Hmong case, to have ministerial visits, high-level contacts, other than fleeting ones at international meetings, which don't seem to allow, allow much substance. So there is a we're in a uniquely unfortunate position. One good thing, one could say, perhaps, that we are not very dependent on the Chinese market. Yes, it is our number two trading partner, but that's less than 5% of our exports go to China. Our partners, the United States, higher percentage, German auto industry is heavily dependent on China. Australia sends it's their number one trading partner. So we are relatively immune. But the idea that there's going to be tomorrow a unified Western approach to cut China out of the international supply chains, I'm not sure we could do that if we tried. But I see no willingness for that kind of action at this time. Okay, we will leave it there. Thank you all for your time today uh, as we continue to cover this story. Thank you. Thank you. Dr. Gordon Holden is Director Emeritus of the China Institute at the University of Alberta, Dr. Stephanie Carvin at Carleton University, and Sarah Teach, International Human Rights Lawyer at McDonald Laurier Institute. Jane for Libby, thank you for being with me this week. Libby returns tomorrow. I'll talk with you on the morning Zoom with Sam and Jane tomorrow morning starting at 5.30. And Bob Komsik has your news next. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio with guest host Jane Brown. Libby will be back tomorrow. September 4th marked 1,000 days for Michael Kovrig and Michael Spavor as hostages of China. The families of the Canadian men, along with friends and supporters, marked the event on September 4th, Sunday morning, uh, in Ottawa. Uh, and they were joined and encouraged to walk 7,000 steps, the same number Michael Kovrig's former wife, Vina Najibula, says he walks in his cell every day. Think about that. Michael Kovrig takes 7,000 steps in his small Chinese cell every day. Uh, you know, before we came on the air, I was sort of imagining the size of a cell and how many trips back and forth that would be. Uh, certainly, you'd have to focus on the steps. It would potentially give you purpose without um, devolving into a mental crisis. It's a little bit of exercise. It's all he can do. But it really, when you start to take those steps in a small space and realize that's how he's staying sane, that's how he's keeping himself going, it's, it is powerful. Both men were charged with espionage. Savor has been sentenced to 11 years in prison. Michael Kovrig has yet to be sentenced after his trial wrapped in March. Joining us to discuss this heartbreaking situation and what's being done about it while the Canadian political leaders are involved in a federal election campaign, no less, Sarah Teach, an international human rights lawyer and senior fellow at Macdonald Laurier Institute, Dr. Stephanie Carvin, national security expert and assistant professor of international affairs at Carleton University, and Dr. Gordon Holden, director emeritus of the China Institute at the University of Alberta. Welcome to you all. Thanks for having us on. Thanks for having us. Dr. Holden, I'll begin with you. Tell us what you know about how the Michaels are being treated and how they're doing. Well, the Chinese jail, I've been in several Chinese jails as a Canadian diplomat based in Beijing, concert cases, these are not ideal circumstances. In fact, in their first six months, when they were in a Ministry of State Security prison, their conditions would have been even worse. 
due to the constant interrogations, uh, difficult, particularly difficult circumstances. Where they are now is moved, but it was, one shouldn't call it a great condition. They're in a Chinese jail. It's tough, and uh, tough on them psychologically, tough on their families, and it's tragic given the, our confidence that this is a retaliatory measure based on the tension of Madam Madam Meng, not something based on anything that they have done. So would they be given enough food every day? Would they be able to sleep in the dark? Uh, would they be able to get any exercise? Do you have the answers to those questions? Well, the, the answers to those, unfortunately, are almost all negative. I mean, they will have enough food. Chinese are not starving them, to be sure. The last thing they want is to have, um, as they even say this, but have a, a, a Canadian uh, uh, die in prison. So that's not going to happen. Uh, exercise is a cell, as is noted um, by those who have uh, concert people who visited them. There's no such thing as the exercise outside, even in, a, in some sort of fenced, fenced yard. Um, and uh, light, it appears for most, if not all of the time they've been detained, their lights are on all the time. Oh, so they have, I mean, one could adjust to that, but yeah. not well. No. The diurnal pattern of darkness and light is one of the very human things that keeps us in good shape. Right. So very tough circumstances indeed. And in sharp contrast to those enjoyed by Madame Monk. Sharp contrast indeed. Uh, Dr. Carvin, did you want to add anything about uh, the detention of the Michaels and what they're living and experiencing for more than a thousand days now? Well, we have, uh, I would, you know, just echo everything that um, has been said. I would also note that the, you know, there were reports earlier on that, you know, um, Michael Coburn had his glasses taken away so that he couldn't read. Um, they are required to, um, you know, speak in English at all times, uh, you know, when speaking with foreigners, um, just, I guess, so that their communications can be monitored. Um, we know that they haven't had regular consular access, and, I mean, COVID has been a part of that, but... They weren't getting regular con, um, um, regular consular access, regardless, and uh, that is in contravention of pretty much uh, all diplomatic agreements. So it really is um, just unfortunate in terms of, of how they're being uh, detained and the conditions that they're in. The only other thing I would add is now Michael Savoir has. We now know what he has been accused of, which was uh, a very confusing. Um, news story in, uh, you know, the Chinese media, which basically said that he had taken pictures of planes and passed them on. Um, and I, I don't understand, <laughs> you know, like, like why, like which planes and like, why wouldn't, you know, spy services have access through like far superior technology than a tourism guide with a camera um, who was he passing them to? It just didn't make any sense. And they accused him of doing this, but then said no major secrets were ever actually leaked, which, again, doesn't make a lot of sense. So it, it's just a very frustrating situation um, and, and one that, that is just kind of unconscionable. Sarah Teach, do you have anything to add about the situation the Michaels find themselves in? Uh, it's getting close to two years. It will be in December. Right. I mean, I again, echoing everything that's been said, and, you know, it's Three years, sorry, three years. Right, a thousand days. Yeah. Uh, basically, you know, these guys have said it all. The only thing I would add is that, um, you know, sort of in line with the accusations being ridiculous, um, the trials were also, you know, ridiculous and also breaches of basic national agreement on point. So, like, these, these trials and these accusations, I would just keep in mind that these are, you know, these were sham trials and the accusations are spurious and not real. And, you know, let's make sure to not ever be fooled by those, um, you know, that facade. This is a hostage situation. It's not a situation where these two men were were spying and they're being rightfully detained for that reason, right? These, this is in retaliation. Uh, I think that's more than clear. Um, getting them back here to Canada uh, will ultimately happen. Uh, that's the optimistic way of looking at it. Spavor is sentenced to 11 years in prison. Dr. Holden, there was some language uh, around the sentencing, which seemed to allow for a Spavor to be sent back to Canada at some point. Well, one of the few good things about Chinese law is that ultimately it reflects the will of the party, the ruling party, the Communist Party. That does mean there can be space for exceptional measures. There are many examples in the past of 
these foreigners who have been caught up in the Chinese legal system but have been paroled on medical grounds, whether that was necessarily the case or not, is beside the point, on humanitarian grounds. In this case, the sentencing included the mention of deportation. I think that was not by chance. That, in effect, Chinese are playing a game here as well. I think, in effect, signaling, uh, yes, there is an out here. Of course, that out for them means release of Madame Meng. I don't think that would mean automatic release of the two Michaels, but I think that would um, begin to clear the way, uh, as it has in similar cases, like the Garretts, two Canadians were also arrested and detained in China um, in anger, Chinese anger, over Canada deporting a uh, spy to the United States for a trial. So I think there's, there, is, there is a solution. We're just not there yet. And the tactics that have been employed have not achieved our goal, which is to bring the Michaels home. Michael Kovrig yet to be sentenced. His trial wrapped up in March. Uh, Dr. Carvin, what can we expect in terms of a sentencing uh, proceeding for Michael Kovrig? Interesting. I mean, the sentencing for Michael Savor kind of came out of the blue. Um, the, the various trials, it, it was really kind of um, just a, a few hours notice, actually. In, in, and then we found out what the actual sentence is. Um and then we believe Michael Saber was sentenced to 11 years and then, uh, you know, then basically being deported from China. And there's a, a financial uh, fee as well. Um, look, I think, you know, the I think we're all in agreement here that the detention of the two Michaels is um, um Pretty much like the result of the detention of Ms. Meng um, in in Vancouver and the uh, deportation uh, proceedings she's going through. And so, with regards to the sentence, I think it may very well depend on what happens in the Meng case, right? I mean, the fact that the Savor trial and sentencing happened right before the kind of final arguments in the Meng case is not a coincidence, right? There's a diplomatic dance going on here, if, even if that diplomacy is kind of happening at the barrel of, with the barrel of a gun. Um, I think that so. So, I honestly think that with Michael Kovrig, it could very much reflect what was given to Michael Savor, but at the same time. It could also be worse, depending on which happens in the Hmong uh, verdict, because, you know, we know the court system there is is pretty much not, you know, it's not independent in the way that, that we think it, uh, of an independent court. Mm-hmm. Um, they have a 99.9% conviction rate. So um, I'm, I'm expecting 11 years or worse. So, Sarah Teach, um, speak to us about the Hmong Wanzhou situation and how ultimately whatever the verdict is there is going to play into the Michael's fate and the choices uh, Canada has uh, as a result of whatever the verdict is. Well, I think Dr. Carvin basically basically covered everything that I would say on that. It, it You know, the verdict will depend on what happens in the Hmong case. So, you know, I think if she were to be released, then that might incentivize the Chinese court system to go easier on on the verdict or perhaps even be a first step in releasing them both. So, you know, versus if she's you know, deported to the U.S. and faces trial there, if things proceed more in that direction, perhaps we'll see another 11-year sentence or, you know, maybe worse. You know, the CCP also hands out death sentences. So, I, you know, let's not forget that. It can be far, far worse, and we don't know what's going to happen. And also, the first verdicts can be changed, and we saw that recently with, you know, another Canadian detained in China. His sentence was upgraded to a death sentence. So the sentences are just as arbitrary as the detentions in that they can also be adjusted downwards and upwards as relations change between the two countries. We need to take a quick break, but uh, when we come back, I want to talk to you about how the situation has been handled uh, thus far by the Trudeau Liberals and uh, whether there are better solutions being offered by the other party leaders during the federal election campaign. We will talk about that when we come back. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Now, Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio with guest host Jane Brown. Libby returns tomorrow. 
Are you among the voters who makes up your mind based on the performance of the leaders in the televised debates? I want to hear from you. 416-360-0740 or toll-free 1-866-740-4740. Tonight is the first of two televised federal election debates, the official ones, uh, tonight in French, tomorrow night in English. This election has turned into a tight race between the Justin Trudeau liberals and Aaron O'Toole conservatives. What does each leader need to do and say to have a breakout moment and shift voter intention? We're going to the experts. Our panel today, David Tarrant. He's a conservative strategist and vice president, national strategic communications at Enterprise. And Bob Richardson is a liberal strategist and senior counsel to National Public Relations. Bob and David, welcome. Hi, Jane. Let's talk about... Hi, Jane. Hi there. Well, let's talk about your observations of all the leaders, including Jagmeet Singh, who has definitely made an impression on Canadians in the campaign to date. Uh, Bob, do you want to start first? Uh, uh, Look, uh, on the campaign uh, uh, to date, uh, sort of the three leaders... um, Beginning with Mr. Singh, I think everybody views him as affable and likable. His numbers have not really moved that much. I don't think he's put forward a program that has lit the world on fire. Uh, Mr. O'Toole, I think Mr. O'Toole had a very good first couple of weeks. Uh, I thought they had a very good controlled message. Uh, I thought he demonstrated that he was, I think, trying to demonstrate that he was a moderate, reasonable candidate for uh, prime minister. Stepped on the banana peel for the last seven or eight days a bit. I think it's cost him a little. Uh, this is an opportunity for him to kind of flip around and get back on track. Uh, for Mr. Trudeau, he's got to do three things, I think. One, uh, he's got a much clearer, uh, uh, clearly say to Canadians why we're having this election. And I don't think that the Liberals have done a, a great job on that. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think he's got to articulate that he has done a pretty decent job as PM, particularly during the pandemic period, which I think the majority of Canadians would agree with. And then he's got to establish this as a two-horse race and that he's the progressive alternative versus the conservative leader. Those are the things that I think that need to happen. I think we should also remember that uh, Anna Mae Paul, the leader of the the Green Party, uh, is in the debate tonight. Uh, Her French is quite good. And it'll give her an opportunity to uh, put forward her views, too, as well. David, what about you, your observations on the campaign so far? Yeah, I mean, uh, just I think I'll go in the same order Bob went in. <clears throat> you know, first of all, Jagmeet Singh, uh, I think, you know, he has I think, done an effective job during the course of the campaign, uh, really making a case to kind of progressive left-leaning voters in Canada that he will be the leader they thought they were getting in Justin Trudeau. Uh, and, you know, Justin Trudeau ran to, to, you know, made a really real distinct appeal to, to progressive voters on the left in 2015 and, and hasn't really given them that. And, and, and Jagmeet say, is kind of saying, you know, like, if, if, if these are your values, I'm, saying, I'm a conservative, Jane. It's not my, you know, they're not my cup of tea. But if you are, a lot of people are, share these values. He, he says, if you, if you believe in these things, so vote for the real deal. Well, Aaron O'Toole, I think, has run a very strong, focused, disciplined campaign. He's been he's been sunny. I mean, sunny ways have become his own. He's been talking around banning puppy mills and increasing the Canada worker the worker benefit and talking about in, in a very kind of positive, forward-looking. Uh, I'm running to be prime minister kind of way. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, the most definitive leader-like statement on Afghanistan in his campaign has come from Aaron O'Toole, and I think he just needs to kind of keep that even keel because the real challenge right now is, is Justin Trudeau. And, 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 and I think two things kind of took the liberals by surprise in this campaign. First of all, they thought they were going to coast to a majority on some sort of pandemic polling boost from the COVID leadership that evaporated in the first week of the campaign. Uh, they thought that this was going to be, a, I call it the, I know what you did last summer campaign, where people just reward him with majority for what he did in the summer of 2020. And that proved to be just to be false. And, and, and the second thing that, that Mr. Trudeau is struggling with is that in a career where his entire career hasn't built around him, his personality, his brand, his leadership, it's one of the more egocentric political careers we've seen in Canadian history. Uh, it's worked for him up to now, but for the first time in his career, um, he's actually a drag on his party. 
And well, making the campaign up like Justin Trudeau actually doesn't help liberal candidates very much. I have to say, David, I am surprised that uh, Justin Trudeau has not focused more on how he handled the pandemic, his leadership through the pandemic. I, I, I do think it's a positive, and that feels like a misstep to me. I, th- I, think, um, <clears throat> I think they hoped, you know, and, and, and far be it for me to read the minds of the Liberal Brain Trust. They hoped that a uh, event-free launch of their election campaign, Jane, would be focused entirely on who do you trust, you know, who, who, you know, give us some credit for what we did in the early days of the pandemic. And listen, I'm a conservative. I thought some of the things they did in the early days of the pandemic were, 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 were wise and smart. Um, but then they called the election campaign while BC was on fire with wildfires, while the Taliban were taking over Afghanistan, and, and most damningly, while the fourth wave was sweeping across the country. And people realized that this whole election campaign is not about rewarding Trudeau for his pandemic leadership. It's about him throwing, in a time of chaos and uncertainty, it's about throwing Canadians into election purely to satisfy his, quite frankly, limitless ambition. And, and I think that crystallized uh, a lot of the reservations that maybe some non-political Canadians have had about Mr. Trudeau that's always been all about him. Bob Richardson, do you think that that sentiment David is describing is going to last through to Election Day, or will Liberal voters forgive Justin Trudeau of his timing and ultimately give him their vote? Well, number one, I don't agree with the premise of uh, everything that David just said. David's a nice guy, but he is a one thousand percent partisan. So, uh, so that's uh, so. Let's let's just put that clearly on the table here. So, uh, I think uh, I think a lot of Canadians will, uh, in the last ten days of this election, as as is the case in most, will take a good hard look at the candidates and decide who do they think they want to be prime minister of the country. Over the next four years, it's up to Mr. Uh, 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 it's up to Mr. Trudeau to articulate why, uh, what his policies are. I happen to think he has a number of policies that differentiate him well from his principal opponent: childcare, the environment, the job he's done on PPE um, are are examples uh, are examples of that. Housing is another one. I think there are a number of issues that are, are that are. Uh, particularly powerful and helpful to liberals and gun control for that matter, uh, that are all uh, powerful and helpful to liberals. I think he needs to clearly articulate that and draw a clear division between himself and Mr. Uh, Mr. Uh, O'Toole. Uh, and I think if he does that, he stands a good chance of being prime minister again. And if he doesn't, we may wake up with a new prime minister uh, the day after the election. Well, Bob, you mentioned uh, O'Toole has stepped on the banana peel a few times in recent days. Uh, can you expand on that? I mean, I know what you're referencing, but for our listeners. Yeah, on the issue of gun control, he, he's had more positions than Masters and Johnson in the last uh, in the last six days. Uh, they had about uh, four or five different positions. I think there's another one out today. So, uh, you know, it's an issue that has not been handled well by them and their friends in the, uh, in the, the equivalent of the National Rifle Association here in Canada have not been helpful. They've been signaling through their website that don't worry what he's saying. He is going to, uh, he is going to allow automatic weapons and a whole variety of different things. That's them saying it, not me, uh, which is not helpful to Mr. O'Toole either. So, I think uh, they could have been clearer. They could have been cleaner on that issue. Um, and uh, I think they have uh, they've uh, damaged themselves a little bit on that. And they've been a little bit too cute by half. I think their uh, I think their studio in Ottawa was an excellent idea, uh, particularly during a pandemic ele- uh, election. And I think it's been more positive than negative. But uh, their lack of access to media, their lack of access mm-hmm. to Canadians. Um, I think is also starting to grate a little and people are starting to go the combination of missteps and lack of access or, uh, raises the questions of is this guy ready for prime time? And I think that's a fair question to ask and one that the Conservatives will have to answer. Well, since we have a Conservative strategist, David Tarrant, with us, David, why don't you respond to that? <laughs> Listen, Jane, I mean, you, me, Bob, we all have seen a lot of elections. We all know how these things go, and, and you know, and, and these things go to a script. And you know, and Bob mentioned you know, the, the the firearms issue. You know, uh, you know, a liberal campaign's in trouble when they start trotting out every boogeyman they can find. And they tried the abortion one; it didn't take. They tried 
oh, you're in league with the anti-vaxxers. It didn't take. You know, they tried the private health care one. It didn't take. And they finally got a couple of days on boogeyman number four uh, on, on, on gun control. And that's, and that's just kind of how you know the liberal campaign's losing when they, when they start basically pretending to run against the Republicans. And, you know, listen. And if they convince a couple people that that's what this is all about, well, yeah, I mean, that's, you know, I think it's, it's, it's breathtakingly cynical, but it's, it's, you know, an election campaign, all is fair. Um, uh, what, what I would say, though, it's, it's you know, on, on the debate tonight, you're going to have Justin Trudeau, whose only reason there's a debate taking place tonight is, is, is Justin Trudeau's ambition. His entire career has been based on drawing attention to himself. Photo shoots, selfies, me, 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 me. And he, for the first time in his career, he's going to need to stay on a, get on a stage and try to convince people that this election is not about him. It's about Aaron O'Toole. Uh, that's a mighty tall order for a guy whose entire, whose entire political career has fundamentally been built on narcissism. And, and to say, actually, this campaign, which, again, the only reason there's a debate tonight, Jane, the only reason we're an election campaign is Justin Trudeau's personal lust for a for majority government. Now, I, I, t- I do take your points, uh, and certainly he has been known and is known globally as the selfie prime minister. But is that really fair to say that that is what he is all about? I mean, there are a lot of Canadians who are very grateful for what the Liberals uh, did during the pandemic, having lost their jobs. At least the Serb was able to keep them afloat. I know the NDP raised that from 1000 to 2000 and that was the the beauty of the minority government. But is that really fair, David? That you know Justin Trudeau is so one dimensional in your mind? Well, uh, has, listen, I said a couple minutes ago, has has Mr. Trudeau actually done some good things? I mean, of course he did. I think the speed in which the government acted in the early days of COVID nineteen actually was, was impressive. Um, uh, and obviously, you know, listen, this guy's still polling in the low thirties, so obviously there's Canadians that, that that like what he's doing. But you know, Jane, you, me, I'm sure you know Bob is a liberal partisan in his own in his own mind. What we saw in 2015 election was a crystallizing of a lot of uh, what what partisan critics of Stephen Harper were saying for years and years and years and years. Finally, crystallized in 2015 among non-political Canadians. But you know, yeah, this guy probably is uh, a little bit too mean, a little bit too rough-edged, a little a little bit too cold for our taste, and we want something warmer and sunnier. And you never know, as a partisan, when that moment happens. But in 2015, a whole lot of non-political Canadians kind of said, okay, we've had enough with the Harper era. And I think the real risk of, that Trudeau faces today is you compare who he is now to who he was in 2015. And you're seeing a large number of Canadians. You know, I've been saying, you know, I've been a critic of Mr. Trudeau for a long time. But for a long time, he was able to convince a large number of Canadians that, no, he was actually in it for them. But what we're seeing in, 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 in how he's polling and how, how people are responding to him right now is that a lot of Canadians are starting to crystallize, say, you know what, um, this, guy, this guy does kind of hold himself above the rest of us. And this guy does think that the rules don't apply to him. And, and his challenge is to say, no, 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 like, actually, I've been in it for you all the time, the way you just said, Jane. I think it's a tall order, but I mean, he gets two chances this week to show otherwise. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and I'm wondering, Bob, uh, in terms of that Sunny Ways persona that was so popular among Canadians, as David was mentioning in 2015, I wouldn't say he's given that up entirely. He's certainly, he's grittier for sure than he was then. Um, but uh, but he he's he's removed himself from from that positioning. Uh, what do you think the strategy was with that? Well, I think number one, he's been prime minister for six years or six years going on seven years. And uh, when you're prime minister, I don't care who you are, uh, that's going to change you a little bit. And there's going to be some people who like you, and there's going to be some people who don't like you because you have to make decisions in that period of time. So you know, for instance, on uh, on vaccines. He's been very clear on what his view is. And there's a small element of the Canadian population disagree uh, strongly against them, and they're making their views known. I don't think that they represent uh, a majority view in the country. So I, I think some of the name-calling narcissists and this and that that conservatives do constantly, at David being an example here today, is because, quite frankly, they're afraid of Mr. Trudeau. He whooped them in 2015, he beat them in 2019, and they're afraid he's about to do it again uh, with three different leaders. So 
So, you know, they, they don't like Mr. Trudeau, and that's because uh, when Mr. Trudeau's involved, they lose elections. And, uh, and, you know, maybe if they focused a little bit more on a positive agenda instead of just viciously attacking Mr. Trudeau, they'd be in a better position today. But I'll leave that up to their strategists to decide. But wouldn't you, wouldn't you say, I Bob, that 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 uh, that sentiment is being manifested by Aaron O'Toole? He is calm. He is positive. He's forward thinking. He, he doesn't yell. His decibel level is very low all the time, partly because he's in that sanitized ballroom. But uh, is he not doing what the conservatives should be doing at this point? I think he's doing some of it, but then he's also he's also quite frankly, uh, I have less problem with Aaron O'Toole than I have with his party. He's got a lot of nuts in that party that he has to control and deal with. He's got some bad policies that have been hung around his neck, some of which he hung around his own neck. He danced with the gun lobby when he was running for leader, and that's one of the reasons he's stuck with the policies that he has today um, because he wanted their votes back then. And now he's trying to figure out how to get that off of his neck and he's having a bad time of it. Uh, so, so look, um, is he a terrible person? No, I've met him. I actually think he's a decent guy. Um, and, uh, I, I think he's a considerable improvement over their last leader. I might add too, as well. But at the end of the day, I think Mr. Trudeau, when people sit down and take a look at it, will say he's been prime minister for six years, he did a good job during the pandemic. Uh, for progressive voters, you've got a chance to have him or a conservative who's going to scrap child care, uh, who's not going to do anything on housing. They did nothing in the 10 years when Harper was in. Uh, and the list goes on. So people are going to have a very clear choice to make. I think Mr. Trudeau will come out quite well when that choice happens. Our Zuma radio listeners want to get in on this conversation. Phone lines are jammed. Uh, it's, I'm fascinated by both the comments from Bob Richardson and David Terrett. So let's see what you have to say. Started out the half hour. It's Jane for Libby, by the way, on Fight Back. Started out by asking you, are you among the voters who makes up your mind based on the performance of the leaders in the debates? Let's see if anybody's going to respond to that or other comments comments around the election campaign. And again, the numbers 416-360-0740 or 1-866-744-740. Louise in Toronto, you're up first. What are your thoughts? Thank you for taking my call. No, I will not be making my decision on the uh, debate tonight. The election should not have been called now. Uh, It's under two years since the last election. And this election is costing the taxpayer $600 million. It's not fair to the worker. That is not fair to the taxpayer. I will hang up now and listen to um, the rest of the show. Thank you. Okay, thank you, Louise. Let's go to Melanie in High Park. Go ahead, Melanie. Hi, thank you for taking my call. Um, I'm too old right now to be fooled over and over again. I always had hope in my politicians. But what I do dislike is that Mr. Trudeau is starting to act like a five-year-old child, especially yesterday when he called people that they were basically unscientific and stupid. How does he know each individual person? I was shocked. He's starting to act like a, you know, give him a little stick and hit us all over the head. Don't accuse us that we're idiots. I'm vaccinated. I believe in science, but I also believe in, in the freedom of speech. But for him as a politician and a leader to start calling people names, and especially the gentleman on your panel who earlier basically also denigrated people, you don't know what each individual knows. So please, and Mr. O'Toole, I believe... I'm going to vote for him probably. I'm not totally sure because he can keep his cool. And as a pilot, he had to know how to keep his cool. I wouldn't want to see Mr. Trudeau or any of the others uh, holding the bot- the red button for a nuclear okay. attack. Okay. Thank you, Melanie. Thank you for your call. We get your drift for sure. Let's go to Pat in Toronto. Go ahead, Pat. Um, nobody's talked about the, um, the finance aspect. And, uh, you know, I mean, we were all told about the middle class, which is never defined. But why don't we have the uh, leaders revealing their tax returns? Um, I suspect very strongly that uh, Mr. Trudeau uh, has a very large trust fund set up by his late father, which is sprinkling income to him and to all his children. And if that was out there, the rest of us would be saying, we can't do that. Why can he do this? 
Okay, thank you, Pat. We've had a variety of thoughts uh, come across here. The phone lines at Zoomer Radio, 416-360-0740. Bob Richardson, you've heard a few callers uh, in terms of a response to some of what has been brought up. Well, number one, I think Mr. Trudeau should begin the evening tonight very clearly articulating why he called the election. And I think uh, Canadians deserve that. And I think the Liberal Party has not done a great job on that, and they need to do a better job. And I I think there is an opportunity to do so. Minority governments have lasted roughly around this time. Every time there's been a minority government in the last 50, 70 years in this country, it's not out of line for the length uh, of a period of of government. And I think it's probably fair for him as prime minister to say, look, I'm making some pretty big decisions here. I need to check in on you with you. The last time I checked in, the agenda was almost entirely different. And we've had a pandemic in between. I think that's a reasonable argument. I don't think that they've clearly articulated that. So that's one thing that they need to do. I think, uh, I don't think Mr. Trudeau's trying to denigrate anybody, uh, in, in this discussion. I think there are people trying to denigrate him who are showing up and throwing gravel at him and doing things like that. I think if anything, he has shown that he has been cool under pressure and cool under fire from a variety of protesters as things have gone on. Um, and some of the other comments, I'm not going to, uh, I'm not going to dignify with the response trust funds and things of that nature. Uh, it's a political nonsense that comes up every four years. Uh, I remember there was nonsense said about Mr. Harper. There's nonsense said about Mr. Trooper, um, with Mr. Trudeau. I think that just sort of comes with the territory. Okay. David, what about you? I mean, listen, um, I'll agree with Bob on one thing. It'd be helpful if, if Justin Trudeau stood in front of the cameras tonight and explained why he called the election. But, he, but when he does, he'll do one of two things. He'll either say, I called this election despite all warnings to the country because I want a majority. And my majority government and my ambitions are more important than what's going on in the world. Or he'll lie to Canadians. Because, you know, listen, Bob knows better, Jane. You've been around. You know better. We all know better. Anyone who's involved in Ottawa, anyone who knows politics knows the only reason we're on a campaign right now is Justin Joe wanted his majority. There was no threat to his government. He brought his own, he, he, he dissolved Parliament and called election because he wanted more power for himself. Well, so, certainly he certainly he had Jugmeet Singh's support, yeah, uh, even even on the wedge issue that he's trying to make a wedge issue on mandatory vaccines. That would have been a slam dunk in Parliament, uh, thanks to the New Democrats. So he would yeah. have been able to put that through. Uh, he would have carried on with uh, the firearms ban as it was laid out last year in that order. Uh, what's what's interesting in all of this is that we're not talking, we're not hearing very very much about climate change, indigenous issues, and long-term care, which I would argue would have been the big issues before the campaign was launched. Uh, David, do you think that those issues may come up tonight, should come up tonight? Should they be a focus? Yeah, I think they'll be raised by Mr. Singh. Uh, and like I say, there's, there's a, a large, listen, I, I think climate change is an issue that, that contains a different persuade, political persuasions kind of reason issue and so his reconciliation and so on and so forth. I think uh, uh, Mr. Trudeau made a lot of promises. Uh, he certainly was very, very good at instituting a carbon tax, but he has not been good at actually controlling Canada's emissions record. And so if you're a, if you're a kind of a green voter or a kind of a, a left-leading environmental voter, or if you're someone who really cares about true reconciliation with, 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 with First Nations, not just land acknowledgments and renaming buildings, but actually what are you doing to actually improve the quality of life uh, for Indigenous communities. Um, there's lots to be disappointed on from the left. Uh, and, and, and I think Mr. Singh has a golden opportunity tonight to say, listen, for those of you who actually believe these things, every four years, Justin Trudeau comes by, or in this case, two years, because he called the election. Every election campaign, Mr. Trudeau will come by and, he'll, and he'll, he'll, he'll plead with you and he'll demonize conservatives and say he believes in all the things you believe in. Then the votes get counted and he does his own thing. And I, so I think that, that this, what you just articulated, Jane, is what Mr. Singh should do and actually make a real appeal to the kind of the progressive left-leaning voters who actually put their faith in Justin Trudeau and actually been disappointed and betrayed time and time again. Let me ask you both this uh, before I let you go. We're coming to the end of our time here. Uh, Bob Richardson, what signifies a win during a federal election debate and who do you think will win? 
Well, the number one win is survival for these poor guys who are up there for uh, for two hours. So that would be point number one. Look, I think uh, uh, a win for a, a win tonight. Uh, the French debate tonight will primarily be between Mr. Trudeau and Mr. Blanchet, I think. Uh, and that's no uh, shot on the other leaders. It's just difficult with language skills sometimes to get in on all of the conversations. Mm-hmm. Although both Mr. Singh and uh, Mr. O'Toole, I thought, did uh, adequately well last time. So I think I think we'll see it being very much a Quebec debate tonight. I think for the English language debate, um, uh, the key thing for Mr. Trudeau is to define himself as the progressive alternative. The key thing for Mr. Uh, O'Toole is to show people that he's ready to be a PM. I think it will be a good scrap both nights. David, what signifies a win and who will get the victory tonight and tomorrow night? Uh, I think for Mr. Trudeau, uh, the ultimate uh, the ultimate measure of victory will be can he box in or trap uh, Mr. O'Toole and make the debate about Mr. O'Toole being offside and some hot-button issue. Uh, if the headlines tomorrow are more about O'Toole saying something or losing his temper or making a, a, a intemperate remark, then that's probably mission accomplished because the natural gravity of this campaign is to make this is this campaign all about Justin Trudeau. I mean, he he is a political celebrity. He has the highest name recognition in the country. And so Trudeau is, can I make this debate about Aaron O'Toole? For Aaron O'Toole, it, it will be about, can I come across and do it, the way he has throughout the campaign so far as optimistic, as statesmanlike, as calm, as measured, as substantive, and as pragmatic, not take any of the traps that make him look ideological or scary, and believe me, he's going to face a lot of those. And basically, um, if he can avoid taking those baits, he actually makes Mr. Trudeau look like he's running the opposition. And that, and that is exactly where he wants to be. Mm-hmm. And for Mr. Singh, uh, for Mr. Blanchett, I mean, Mr. Blanchett I mean, will... will, will will come after Trudeau on, on, on areas of federalism that, for those with English Canada, are, are you know, are quite frankly arcane. But for Mr. And for Mr. Singh, uh, like I like mentioned before, is to say, you know, to make a real uh, sincere, and people believe Singh is sincere, that for those people who believed that about what you were getting from Justin Trudeau in 2015, you have an opportunity to vote for the real thing. And, and to see if actually get some, keep those progressive voters, because the liberals right now are trying to scare, like Bob just said, the liberals are trying to scare left-leaning voters into making him the only alternative, which is a funny word for an incumbent to use, to, to Mr. O'Toole, Mr. Singh goes, well, actually, the liberals aren't a progressive alternative at all. Uh, and so, you know, put your faith in your values and put your faith in the NDP. We will all be watching tonight and tomorrow night. Uh, Bob, I sent you one, one more word. Uh, when when conservatives are openly campaigning for the NDP, you know the Liberal Party's on the move. Look okay. forward to this evening. Okay, thank you both for your time. Thank you. David Tarrant, conservative strategist and vice president, National Strategic Communications at Enterprise, and Bob Richardson, liberal strategist and senior counsel to National Public Relations. Great discussion. Thank you both. Dean for Libby and still to come here on Zoomer Radio's Fight Back, a thousand days thousand days have come and gone, and still the two Michaels are trapped in Chinese custody. The latest on the story from a panel of experts next. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.